Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member here in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know I've talked to people from every state, from Alaska to Miami, uh, Maine to Hawaii, all points in between from school board, which is very important, up to U.S. Senate, which I guess is just as important as school board. It's debatable depending on the day. Um, And I like to talk to people, especially in state legislatures, because as my guest today will hopefully agree, state legislatures are some of the most important places in the country for the good reasons and bad and all in between. But people don't pay enough attention to them. We often don't have enough candidates there. So today, I'm going back to Oklahoma to talk to my new friend, hopefully we'll be friends, uh, uh, Representative Mickey Dolans from Oklahoma to learn his story and hopefully encourage you to run for office. Mickey's got quite a story from football to the legislature, um, and he is very vocal in ways that Democrats aren't in a lot of other states, so I'm sure he's going to have a lot to say. So Mickey, thanks for talking today. Tony, thank you so much for having me on the show. I can already tell right now we're going to be great friends. I think so. I... I have you have your own group chats on Facebook or text, right? So yeah. when you said you were interested, I started sending your TikToks to my friends saying, "This is who I'm going to talk to," and they were really excited. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So, but before we get on, um, I learned uh, from talking to Jacob Rosecrans from. Uh, Oklahoma. I always get his last name wrong. And he, even during the podcast we recorded together, um, but that a lot of people got involved in Oklahoma because of education, which seems to be your big start. Have you always been politically minded or was it really the education that got you to take the biggest leap? No, actually not. I had a very unconventional path to running for office. And that's why I think it's so great that you're doing this show because some people, they know from an early age, they want to be in politics and other people, not so much. Uh, I was in that group where uh, politics just wasn't talked about very much growing up around my household. Uh, from a young age, uh, pretty much the only thing I knew I wanted to do was play college football somewhere. And uh, from my freshman year on, that pretty much dictated all of my choices from going to school, making good grades, uh, not getting in trouble. And um, unfortunately, our high school football team was absolutely terrible. We won three games my junior year and one game my senior year. And uh, although I had individual success, it was often, um, you, you were kind of, it was a, kind of a depiction of your overall success depending on the team's success. And let's just say there weren't very many college coaches recruiting from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And I promised myself that if somehow, some way I did get a football scholarship, I would help other kids do that as well by writing a book. And um, amazingly, I I, I took a, a proactive initiative and started sending my highlight tape to a bunch of colleges all over the country And I went from zero interest to three full-ride D1 football scholarships in about two months. And I ended up choosing Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And I majored in English with a specialization in creative writing. And I wrote that book. It's called Recruit Yourself, How to Earn an NCAA Football Scholarship. And it teaches kids how to effectively market themselves and get the eyes of the attention of football or any coach for that matter without the uh, relying on their parents or coaches to, or, yeah, to do that for them. And so I decided after I was um, done with school that I was going to uh, go be a, a work in the oil and gas industry, just like my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my dad. And um, at that point, my, my younger brother, he unexpectedly died, and he had always wanted me to try out for the NFL. And so as a way to kind of honor and commemorate him, I 
tried out for the NFL and I didn't get drafted, but I did get an invite to try out for the United States bobsledding team. And so I went up to Lake Placid, New York, and I tried out and I made it on Team USA as the second pusher on a four-man bobsled team. And it gave me the opportunity to travel and not only in Canada, but over overseas for the first time to represent the United States of America in Austria and Switzerland and Europe in general. And I came back to Oklahoma after the 2014 Sochi Olympics. And uh, that was in 2014 was my last race. And then I got a job in the oil and gas industry and I was a roughneck and I did roughnecking for about a year and a half uh, from about 2014 to about 2015. But at this point, oil was really taking a dive in Oklahoma. And unfortunately, uh, me and my crew, we were laid off. And I had a college degree to fall back on, but they didn't. And at that time, I didn't know the word for it, but it was economic diversification. We had very little. It was all oil and gas. At that point, we weren't that invested into wind or solar like we are now. But I knew there was something wrong with that. And so anyway, I used my English degree to become a teacher at the largest high school in Oklahoma City Public Schools, U.S. Grant. And I uh, taught my first year, and I liked it so much, I used some of my oil money from uh, working on the rig to put a down payment on a house down the street from U.S. Grant and um, was enjoying life as a teacher. And then we, the state ended up in a $1.5 billion revenue failure due to failed trickle-down economics and poor fiscal tax policy unsound tax policy. And I, along with a bunch of teachers in Oklahoma, were laid off due to lack of failure. And I'll never forget that day when my principal called me into his office and said, in all my years in administration, I've never had to let a teacher go due to lack of funding. And at that point, I knew that I wanted to make a difference, not just from doing a teacher, teacher walkout from outside of the Capitol, but from inside the halls of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. from inside that house chamber. And I had no idea where to start. All I knew was I wanted to champion mental health causes for people like my brother. I wanted to champion good jobs for my friends on the rig. And I wanted to champion public education so more teachers and students wouldn't have to go through what I did and what my students had to go through when we were laid off and schools were going to four-day school weeks. And so I got a list of voters and their addresses, and I started going door-to-door to my neighbor's houses. And I would first ask them what was important to them. But it was kind of funny when I was first doing that, they didn't know who I was. So they would thought I was either there to sell them, you know, something on the door or I was there to, to preach to them or something. But I would, the first thing I would say is I came to ask for your vote and ask what's important to you at the state Capitol. And, you know, typically I would catch people off guard, but then I would come around a second time, a couple months later after going through the whole district. And they would say, oh yeah, you know, last time you came here, there was something I thought about. Mm-hmm. the conversation and then a few months later after i make another round through the district i'd come back around and they'd be oh hey mickey it's so hot outside why don't you come in for some water you know building up that trust that familiarity that's what got me elected and in 2016 i ended up flipping a republican district blue and um i believe i won that uh that race by 58 percent yeah you know um there's so many things you said there that i want to ask a follow-up on but one of them is when it comes to education, it's become so polarized on lots of really crazy things. And I'm sure you think it's um, kind of odd. They're not things you would even think about some of the time, whether it's curriculum or funding. But I just talked with an Arizona state legislator, uh, Laura Tarek. Uh, she is a teacher as well, an elementary school teacher. 
And we talked about how in her state, a lot of politicians who have a strong opinion on what to vote for don't ever step foot in a school. From your experience now being in a legislature, you you understand what it's like being an educator. Do you think that there's a lack of understanding from people who don't who aren't in school or don't have kids in school? Like people don't really understand what's going on in the day to day in education. You know, I would say to an extent, but I think that ideology and political agendas would even override that. Mm-hmm. Perfect example is a state superintendent in Oklahoma currently. This guy, Ryan Walters, had spent, um, I think, six or seven years as a public school teacher in McAllister Public Schools. He is hellbent on using taxpayer dollars to funnel to private schools, even religious schools, uh, which would be a detriment to our public schools, especially those out in rural Oklahoma where they don't have private schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I think that in this political climate, even though they could maybe have spent time in the classroom, have um, empathized or have spoken to teachers, I think at this point and where we're at in this political landscape, political ideology and agendas supersede that. And so it, it, we're in a very, un, I feel like at this point in, in my lifetime anyway, it's uncharted territory. And it's deeply personal to me, not only because U.S. Grant is in the district where I teach and a lot of my students are, you know, that was seven years ago when I got elected. And so they're older now. And uh, I still go to my schools and keep in touch with my administrators. But I've got two children, one who's turning five this weekend, who will be in kindergarten public schools next year. I've got a daughter who's three and a half. She'll be in public schools Mm -hmm. next year. And so uh, not only is it important to me for all 700,000 Oklahoma kids who attend public schools, but I'm in, I've, I've got a lot of skin in the game too. So it's extremely important to me that we have wise people who aren't hell bent on political ideologies and funneling away taxpayer dollars to private institutions, uh, that we attract and retain high quality teachers that um, students are able to participate in extracurriculars, that we have a public education system that values the arts, and that we have the uh, resources available for mental health in our schools, and that every kid has every opportunity that they could possibly want to reach their full potential and succeed beyond the classroom. And so that's where I'm at. It's, it's very, it's very de- deep and layered than just visiting in the classroom. I think we got to go beyond that to a- actually ask people not – Not candidates, just have you visited classrooms, but where specifically do you stand on public schools versus private schools? Where exactly do you stand on on teacher retention and attraction? Those type of like getting down into the nuances, I think is really important when people have an opportunity to ask their candidates or elected officials questions. Yeah, you know, the way you talk about education, other people do too, is reminds you how people talk about politics in terms of they see certain jobs like being a representative or being a teacher as a service a public good and almost forget that it's a job like the reason i'm not a uh, public school teacher is because well i don't have a degree in it but also it's not necessarily the safest job in terms of pay and and all the political things with it right like it's there's a lot of things you have to think about your job there's a lot of reasons people don't get into public service because it's not affordable as an option for them not because they're rich but because they're they're not rich enough to be a public servant um so do you think that people maybe have um they're good people but just have a misunderstanding of what we need to do to help teachers and improve those schools it is confusing because we hear from our friends across the aisle in my case republicans how 
they want to be efficient and competitive and they support free market capitalism. Yet right down the state south of us in Texas, they pay $20,000 or more right off the bat when you start teaching. Um, states like Arkansas, New Mexico, Kansas, a lot of them are giving their teachers more respect in the classroom in terms of compensation and, and support. And so I feel like if, if we want to truly build our state, it starts at the education level. Mm-hmm. I mentioned I'm from Bartlesville, and one of the biggest industries in Bartlesville is Phillips 66, a really big oil and gas town. Phillips 66 recognizes that in order to attract and retain the best quality candidates or uh, employees in the world, that the quality of life in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, has to be top tier. And that's why that particular private industry invests in their public schools so they have an amazing STEAM education, uh, facilities for not only sports, but band and art and theater are top-notch. The town is really safe. Uh, public services are well-funded. And it's not just Phillips. It's, uh, they have partnerships with other companies. But I wish that the state of Oklahoma would take a page from the playbook of Phillips and recognize that by investing in our communities, by investing in public education, that's going to get the big-time companies that we continue to fail to attract, like Panasonic, Volkswagen. Those are some that just... You know, we were in the running for some other states and they chose Texas over us. They chose Kansas over us. Um, investing in our core services to improve the quality of life. So that way the employees looking to move here know that their children are going to have every opportunity to succeed going forward is paramount. If we want to build up our economy, diversify our economic portfolio and become more prosperous as a state. But if we continue to bleed and defund our core services and disrespect teachers and continue to hype on these harp and harp on these social cultural war issues that affect very little, but take up so much of their airspace, we're going to continue suffering as a state and not attracting the big companies and manufacturing advanced manufacturing plants that we so desperately want and need. You know, I have um, talked with people in every state, and I, I really like to focus on legislatures. One thing I've heard from Missouri, from South Carolina, from Kansas and Nebraska um, and Alaska, like so many, as they would say, quote, deep red states, is that it's almost like there's three parties. There's a Democratic Party, which is usually kind of left of center, not like in their state. It's not like it's like... I don't know. It's not super, super left, but they're also very good Democrats in the red states. I think they're more interesting than most blue states. Um, and I would recommend a few people go back and learn from my discussion about Hawaii that, like, the Hawaii Democrats are probably not as cool as the Oklahoma Democrats. Um, there's just a lot of them. But um, when they're, there's, like, three parties. There's the Democrats. There are the social far-right far Republicans. And then there's the business Republicans. And it's almost like there's a difference there in terms of the other the opposition party you're working with, but that the more, I guess you could say more center-right Republicans feel kind of um, beholden to their primary, so they're stuck even doing things they don't necessarily think is in the best. Is that your situation there, where maybe you have some people who, look, if we didn't bring these bills up, they wouldn't be doing it, but they feel like they have to because of the primary structure in Oklahoma? Tony, that's a great point. And I, and I have two responses to that. One, the state chambers totally agree with you. The state chambers, they tend to lean, lean more conservative, but they are very pro-business minded. 
These socially divisive cultural war issues do not help them in attracting businesses. That's why I'm always encouraging my friends at the Oklahoma State Chamber to please be vocal. Please voice a stance against these divisive social cultural war bills because you're only hurting our chances of attracting new companies. Second to that, I've been advocating for a couple of years now that we need ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. Ranked choice voting would discourage that negative campaigning. A lot of Republicans have to go extremely far right, especially in ruby red states like Oklahoma, in order to win their primaries. And a lot of times they don't even believe in that, but they have to do it to win their primaries. Well, then they put themselves in a box because in order to stay elected, they have to continue to Um, keep their campaign promises and be as extreme as possible to ward off any other primary challengers going forward. That could all be addressed, not completely, but a big step forward by ranked choice voting. And so my goal is to get Oklahoma um, to put a ballot initiative, a a vote of the people to start off maybe at the municipal level like Maine did, and then grow up to a, a larger statewide ranked choice voting system once people become more familiar with that. And for people who are listening who may be unfamiliar with ranked choice voting, it's simply you rank your first preference and then your second and then your third and up to four or five typically is the standard. And if the tallies are made and there's one candidate that has a simple majority, which is 50% plus one, then they win. Mm-hmm. If Owen has 50%, then the, the person with the least amount of votes is crossed off. And then the person's people who voted for that person, their second choice would go up. And then whoever has 50% plus one, a simple majority would win. It creates a situation where a candidate, whether you're Democrat or Republican, they need to appeal to more the most people. And that means they don't aren't necessarily going to be as divisive. They're not going to be as polarizing. And at the end of the day, we have seen this have great success, like in Alaska, for example. And so I think that would be a great step forward. I think that campaign finance reform would go a long ways in uh, restoring some faith in our um, elections. Not, not saying voter fraud or anything, just that people who are out there campaigning um, aren't being bought off by special interests or being beholden to a a large special interest group or industry once elected. Um, There's a lot of really big democracy reforms that we could do that would have a great impact on the overall health of our democracy going forward. The hard thing is, is getting that implemented. Now, Oklahoma is one of 26 states that has the power of direct democracy or ballot initiatives. And it's incredibly important that we protect the process and not allow uh, the GOP to dismantle it, as they've tried to do in Arizona, which they were successful in raising the threshold, I believe, to 60 percent. They tried it in Arkansas recently with Proposition 2, and the people of Arkansas voted down. Um, There was a bill that uh, I helped kill in the Senate that would have increased the passing threshold for a ballot initiative measure from 50% plus one to an astounding 66%. If that were the case, we would not have criminal justice reform, no medical marijuana, um, no Medicaid expansion, but cockfighting would still be legal in Oklahoma. Well, good. Uh, we want that's, that's very important. <laughs> so the people of Oklahoma in 2002 voted to uh, make illegal, to, to make cockfighting illegal and 56% of Oklahomans voted in favor of that. Um, And and so going forward, uh, when we see the writing on the wall with like restoring reproductive rights, um, ending gerrymandering, ranked choice voting, there's a lot of really great initiatives that could happen in a 
in a deep red state like Oklahoma that will only be possible through the ballot initiative. For example, medical marijuana, criminal justice reform, Medicaid expansion, all made possible through the ballot initiative. The reddest state in the country passes some of the most liberal um, reforms through direct democracy. And I qualify and I qualify that by in 2016 and 2020, Oklahoma is the only state in the entire country where every single county went red. So I call this the reddest state in the country. You know, speaking as the reddest state in the country, as you say it, um, I recently was talking to another legislator from South Carolina, Spencer Wetmore. And one thing she said was, we, we talked about was how she might change her language, how she talks about things, because she wants to protect um, the coastal communities with, with, due to erosion and things like that. They need to protect those communities. And really, a lot of the problems affecting um, coastal states is due to climate change. But when she goes and talks to the Republican legislature, even when she was not in the legislature yet, when she was a, a city or borough manager, she would kind of talk in a way that she could get support. You can't get the bills up that you want because you're in the minority. Do you kind of use your language in a way or use your power of the voice to kind of move people around in a way that you wouldn't necessarily say to me, but maybe you're like, I can convince Bob and Jake and, and Sam by talking to them and certain things about what they care about, like, talking to your audience in a way. Is that how you can be somewhat successful in Oklahoma? Yeah, I think you have to. A good example is in 2018, I passed the Industrial Hemp Pilot Program, which allowed farmers to grow hemp for the first time since 1937. And the way that I framed that to my friends across the aisle was we need to empower farmers, give them every opportunity to compete economically with other states. If we allow them to grow hemp, this is another textile that they can use, a crop that they can use for CBD, for textiles, for, for paper. There's just unlimited products for it. And so once you brought in the, with the benefit it could do for rural Oklahoma and our farmers and empowering them to, to make more money, um, it became a no-brainer, and it was passed and signed into law in 20, I believe 2017, 2018, and then shortly after, the uh, medical marijuana bill came uh, up for a vote uh, for the on a ballot initiative, and it, it passed overwhelmingly as well. And I think that um, the medical, I think that the industrial hemp pilot program kind of opened the doors for that. But another example is we've got, you know, water issues in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, invasive red cedars that, that drink a lot of water. So then you got to create some maybe some social programs like that to help eradicate this invasive species. Um, the eastern red cedar tree is also very, very flammable. So it creates crazy wildfires. It drinks up so much water. But then you couple that with climate change and drought. It creates a bad problem. But of course, um, people are very persuaded when it affects them personally. And whenever their land and their communities catch fire, um, they're much more receptive to ideas and, and different ways of thinking that maybe they wouldn't be so open to um, prior. You, know, you also have made a name for yourself on social media, especially TikTok. You're probably the only legislator out of all of the legislators in the country who has successfully in some way been able to reference Man Bear Pig. I <laughs> love that, but... I know that when you go to do testimony, I just heard um, in, in Texas, uh, Representative James Tallarico was just uh, using his testimony really effectively to talk about Ten Commandments, which is something you've been talking about too, um, in terms of religion and schools. So you know you're in the minority on votes, but you have this pulpit. Um, how do you feel about that reach beyond Oklahoma? Do you think that doing these things 
using TikTok and Twitter, et cetera, can enlighten the rest of the country? What's going on in red states? Well, one of the things I like about posting debates or questions and stuff on there is it, um, it, it's nice to know that people are listening and that it's resonating with others. And so a lot of times, uh, if we'll do the work, I've seen so many times, and let me just give a shout out to my colleagues in the House Democratic Caucus who show up day in and day out, who ask the questions, who give phenomenal articulate debates and never post it. Uh, I've started to highlight some more of their debates and posting them on my channels, Mm -hmm. but they are putting in the work and what they're saying is resonating with so many people. Unfortunately, it just isn't heard that often. And so for other legislators or people who are running for office who would like to um, make a difference and, and let other people know that what you're saying is it's absolutely resonating with people, invest in one of those like little wireless lapel mics, you know, laugh mic, and, and get the content and put it out there because I promise you that people out there, and it's not to feed your ego, but it's to let other people know that they've got a voice at the Capitol that's making a huge difference. I have all the respect in the world for Representative James Tallarico and what he's done in his uh, tenure in the uh, Texas State Legislature. He is one of the most articulate representatives I've ever heard speak, and he, his I know his mother is a pastor, and he, he gives sermons too. Um, and But he, he understands that there's a, a separation of church and state and that our taxpayer dollars shouldn't go to fund specific religious institutions unless you're willing to open it up to all religious institutions. And so I know that he's going to do a very effective job at that. But for anyone else who feels like they're just yelling in the void, which is how I felt for so long until we've had these mediums like TikTok and Instagram and because I've served for seven years and I haven't always put my debates up. I just started doing that oh, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it gives me motivation to continue uh, working hard because I know that people are listening and it's having an effect and it's appreciated. And so for anyone who's <laughs> from like my man bear pig to my, to my debates on why it's a good idea to, to not funnel taxpayer dollars to religious institutions and who have uh, given me any type of compliment or even critique, um, I appreciate that public discourse because really that's a sign of a healthy democracy. And it can be, you know, I still get nervous before debates and, you know, it can be, um, you know, quite the intimidating thing. But at the end of the day, I'm always happy I do it because uh, it needed to be said. And I'm so proud of my colleagues who do the same. Um, takes a lot of courage to get up there and, and say something in a state like Oklahoma, such as that. Uh, for some people, they would say, well, well that would be, you know, detrimental to your career as a, as a representative or a politician. And I was like, I'm not in it to have a career. Uh, I've got jobs and things I've always done outside of the Capitol. I'm here to be a voice for my constituents in District 93, South Oklahoma City. But recently I've realized that it's not just in South Oklahoma City, but across the state and across the country. And that's very impactful and it gives me motivation to keep going. Yeah, you know, you you said it can be intimidating talking about issues or debating, and I I feel that way on council sometimes, uh, depending on who's coming up, because I don't want to sound dumb, you know, like I will prep about like wanting a good question and wanting it to be worthwhile for for everyone there. But it can also be intimidating to a first time candidate to run, especially if they're a Democrat in a very red state. But I found from my podcast that the some of the coolest Democratic parties are in redder states. There's so many cool um, Democrats in Oklahoma and in Texas and in Missouri. 
Um, how has that been for you rewarding just as a person? Like, because it can be so frustrating, I'm sure, when you can't get the things done or you see what's happening. But is it yeah. personally rewarding to you being able to work with people who you're like, okay, this is refreshing at least? The most powerful tool that we have is that microphone mm -hmm. and being able to have a platform and speak out against rushed legislation, short-sighted, you know, terrible legislation that even though sometimes the authors have a positive intent, their legislation absolutely has negative unintended consequences. And to be able to push that right to speak button, stand up and use your microphone to raise awareness, to be, you know, play devil's advocate on a lot of bills is an incredibly important role. And while you may not get, you know, 15 to 20, 30 bills passed a year, you're lucky to get one or two. Um, the real work is in being the, I, and I don't want to sound self-righteous, but um, some people describe it as the conscience mm -hmm. of the chamber. So whenever um, a, a single party has absolute power, like they do in Oklahoma, for example, the GOP, they have 81 House members. We have 20 Democrats. They control the Senate, they control the House, and they control the governorship. And there's a lot of dysfunction between the House chamber, the Senate, and the governor because they're just so big. And sometimes they can disrespect the process in terms of trying to get bills through, um, just doing a, a due pass second, you know. And you have to slow it down and say, hey, we have a process here. We have uh, democratic norms, and we need to thoroughly vet these bills before we just go signing them into law. Because we've seen time and time again that a lot of them are unconstitutional. They end up costing taxpayer money. Um, a lot of them have unintended consequences. And so I think that um, the role of the minority party is extremely important in terms of being a checks and balance on um, pushing through absolute, um, I mean, just easily pushing through bills that have no business being signed into law. So it can be rewarding working with people and having a voice and being a conscience um, in a positive way like that. Um, another thing, though, I have noticed, and especially in red states, but not only that, but here in Pennsylvania with my U.S. Senator John Fetterman, is a better attention to mental health, which you've brought up a lot in your own personal life. Um, but I can see uh, that you, uh, Jacob, uh, other people, Maureen and others, Carrie Hicks, I think there's so many cool people in Oklahoma who you see the impact negatively of the legislation, whether it's on abortion or education. Um, how do you deal with the mental health aspects, not as just as a legislator, but as a person where you're sitting there and you know what this is going to be like, and you have to go home with that on your shoulders and on your back. Um, do you guys take care of each other? Do you, do you think it's important if you go into politics, um, if you're a candidate to have like an outlet, like reading or running? What do you think about the mental health aspect of thinking about the impact of legislation, good or bad? Yeah, it's a really great question. And regardless of what profession someone is in, I always recommend someone have like hobbies, things that they're passionate outside of work. And so for me, I've, I've had jobs outside, like I've been the executive director of a large nonprofit, which is very fulfilling. Um, I have uh, colleagues in the house that I go mountain biking with. Uh, I like to work out. I like to be out in the sun, uh, spend time with my kids, go walk my dog. All of those things are very good for my mental health. It's just a matter of finding out what it is that you like. Growing up playing sports, um, I was able to turn it on and turn it off pretty easy. So while I'm very passionate about debates and preparing and getting ready and then making my points and, and doing my work, I, I have a pretty um, 
easy time, I guess, over the past seven years of being able to flip that switch on and off. And so when I leave the Capitol, of course, you still think about you still think about it, but it doesn't consume me because I always try to then shift my attention to being, you know, completely present for my kids or, you know, whatever else I'm working on outside of the Capitol. But that takes practice. And, you know, there's definitely uh, a highly qualified therapist can help people become better at doing that. And those are all things that I think are very healthy and um, should be encouraged. So speaking of encouragement, this is the You Should Run podcast. Um, right now it's the middle of 2023. And I don't know when you, you – well, you told me when you started thinking about running for um, uh, state legislature yourself. But this could be the time when people are thinking about running for 2024 even. Why would you tell people that they should uh, get involved and run for office, especially legislatures – and what would you tell them to take as their first step? Yeah, I would say that um, if you're considering running for office, I've seen far too many candidates who try to be a star within their political party, going to the events, the, the get banquets, the galas, all of that. No, be a, be a superhero in your community, mm-hmm. in your neighborhood. If you're a Democrat, we have what you call the VAN, the Voter Access Network. Mm-hmm. It's a list of people, how often they vote, their addresses, their party affiliation. It doesn't tell you who they voted for, but it will tell you how often they vote or their addresses. You can get a mobile app called the Van Mini app, and you can have a list of super voters. For example, if you're running for school board, you're going to want to go to those people who vote in every single election. If you're running for a state representative, then you want to go to those people's homes who, who are certainly going to vote every two years. Knock on their door, Tell them first, hey, I came by to ask for your vote. What particular issues are important to you at your state capitol? And then build relationships that way. Your time is so much better spent on the doors, on the doorsteps, than it would be out at some banquet schmoozing with incumbents or lobbyists or anything like that. They don't care until you're elected. I would say be prepared for that, too. A lot of incumbents... Um, they're not going to go way out of their way to help in a candidate. You got to put in the work first. But I promise you, once you are recognized and you have a reputation of being out there day in and day out, talking to the people, asking for their votes, building up relationships, then that's when you will attract the attention of candidates and people who could support you going forward. Uh, I can't stress that enough. Another thing is um, wear something with your campaign logo on it. Like maybe it's a large button. If you're, you know, that's probably the most cost efficient thing. Instead of buying T-shirts, buy a large button with your logo on it. Wear something cool. Wear something friendly. I remember when I was knocking doors, I had these blue shorts and a white shirt with my logo up here. And I, and I swear, I can't confirm, but I think more people opened the door because they thought I was a letter carrier. Mm-hmm. And so, any way that you can get people to just open the door and say hi, and if they're not home, leave a little sticky note that said. Hey, I just came by to ask for your vote. Hope to catch you next time, Mickey Dollins. And you can have those little sticky notes printed up, and they look just like you wrote them yourself. Put your walk card in their doorknob. Put that little sticky note on there, and then put in your van that you attempted. You know, you came by, so that next next time you come around, you can see. Oh, I attempted this person three months ago, and if they're not there, you can leave it again. I promise you. After six months of doing that. Um, it will start to add up, especially if you're running in an urban area where you can get to 100 doors a day, uh, go to, on the weekends. Obviously, we have to balance campaigning with work, but that's the way you do it. Don't spend all this time out there thinking too hard about your website, thinking too hard about your political messaging. Your political messaging will come after 
days and days and hours and hours of talking to people on the doorstep. They'll tell you exactly what's important. And then you should be asking them questions. And if they ask you why you're running, then go ahead and tell them. But you're there to represent them. And in order to, th- to do that, you must listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing I also want to bring up, because you talk about your, your reputation as a candidate becomes your reputation as an incumbent uh, months later, not years later, but right away if you win. And even if you lose, right? But don't you also, as a Democrat, if you go dock those doors, help the reputation of the Democratic Party as well? Because you have those rural communities in Oklahoma where Democrats don't field a candidate. And so those people rightfully think that the Democrats have a reputation of ignoring them, don't they? Well, in red states like Oklahoma, there's no way around it. You have to work hard if you want to win. There's so many, um, and, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but there are so many Republicans that all they need is an R behind their name. And for a lot of them, that's going to get them elected if the, if the Democrat doesn't do any work. But as a Democrat in Oklahoma or any red state for that matter, you have to go build those personal relationships. Meeting people in person is going to build up familiarity. Familiarity is going to build up trust and trust is going to get you elected. That's what it takes. And then once you do get elected, stay in touch with your constituents, send them updates at least twice a year. You can send them birthday cards, um, which I do every month. You can do. And the good thing about a birthday card is, of course, it's sometimes I get quite a bit that this sometimes it's the only birthday card they get. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you can also have your contact information on there, your email, your phone number and a way for them to reach out to you. And you will get so many calls and a lot of them won't even be relative to the state level issues. But the great thing is, is you can be that first point of contact that can then direct them to their municipal elected officials, to their local school board, even the federal delegation. And so you can be that point of contact where they go first and then your assistant or you can help them get to where they need to go and then follow up and make sure they do it. They'll never forget that and they'll talk about it and then you'll start being recognized in the community. And then once you are putting in the hard work and you're raising the questions and making debates, even if it's not a perfect debate, you know, put it out there because even if you're, you know, you're stumbling on your words, your voice is shaky. I promise you people feel the same way. Everyone's nervous to get up and talk, but at least they know that there's someone out there with enough courage to stand up and represent their voice and, and their concerns at the state capitol. And I promise you they're going to listen and they're going to respect you for it. You know, speaking of getting in touch with you, that's how we got in touch as I followed you on social media, different platforms. Uh, if people are interested, want to learn more, maybe be inspired, maybe ask questions about how they can run for office. What are the best ways that you would recommend people reach out to you and learn more? I'd be more than happy to. I love connecting with people on social media. I love Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, Mickey Dollins, M-I-C-K-E-Y-D-O-L-L-E-N-S. The only Mickey Dollins in the country. Uh, Follow me on there on my Facebook. It's representative Mickey Dollins, but on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, that's it. Just Mickey Dollins. You can comment on on my posts or you can send me a direct message. If you're going to send me a direct message, do that either on Twitter or Instagram um, because uh, Facebook's really hard to keep up with. But I would love to help in any way that I can candidates who are going to run. Um, There's still so much more information to share, and I would be happy to answer anyone's specific questions going forward. I will attest to that. I reach out, and uh, Mickey responded to me. And Mickey, 
you're very fine at answering questions and doing this podcast. We're best friends now, and hopefully you can be too if you listen to him. Um, so please, if you are interested, maybe you should run for office to leave no um, office left unchallenged, or at least you know make sure everyone has a voice, especially for some progressive values out there. Thank you so much, Mickey. I wish you the best of luck in Oklahoma, and uh, anything we can do to highlight that what's going on there, I'm always here. Tony, thank you for your service on city council, and thank you for having this important podcast. Pleasure to be on your show. And one last thing I do have to say, happy birthday to your son. Thank you very much. I'll tell him. <laughs>